Well, hello again, everyone. Welcome to the Red and White Authority. I'm Art Regner. This is episode 113. And before we get to our special guest, it's, of course, the TSN Director of Scouting, former general manager in the NHL and former director of scouting in the NHL with the Dallas Stars and the Calgary Flames. I kind of reversed that. But anyway, Craig Button's going to join us in a second. But let me first tell you about uh, Labatt Blue. That is our sponsor of the Red and White Authority. You know, at this time of year, you know, the hockey playoffs are definitely over. Congratulations to St. Louis Blues. But as you're relaxing on the deck or you're binging on a television show that you couldn't watch during the busy hockey season, what what better would way to cap off the day than a nice icy cold Labatt Blue? It is the official Canadian beer of the Detroit Red Wings, and we always ask that you drink Labatt Blue premium beer responsibly. And with that said, let's bring in Craig Button, no stranger to the program. It's always great to have him on. Very busy, obviously, this time of year with the draft coming up on Friday and Saturday in Vancouver. Craig, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Always my pleasure to join you, Art. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. But my first question. Yeah. John Beeline heads to the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers. Yep. How about Jawan Howard coming back to coach the basketball team? How great is that? You know, I'll tell you what, I kind of like it. I mean, when you look at the Fab Five, and people that don't know, Craig is kind of a, a little bit of a Michigan fan, such as, as I am, but... You know, he was the one that got them all together. He was the first one to commit. And, you know, the story, although it's tragic, it just goes to show you why he was so emotional the day that he was named Michigan head coach. The day he committed to Michigan, he signed his letter of intent. His grandmother, who raised him, passed away on that very day. And so you can tell that, you know, the University of Michigan means everything to Jawan Howard. And, uh, uh, you know, much like it, not to change the subject, but much like Steve Eiserman, I'm pretty eager to see what he's going to do. Uh, uh, so uh, I think it's I, I think it's absolutely great. I, I do too, and I, I mean, when we talk about Steve Eiserman returning to the uh, Detroit Red Wings, I mean, an iconic figure in, in, with the Red Wings and in the city of Detroit. And, you know, I, I lived in Ann Arbor for 12 years, and I remember going over to Chrysler Arena and watching the Fab Five play those, the ABC trucks and the ESPN trucks would roll into town, and every game was broadcast. And, I mean, it was such a special uh, time there in Ann Arbor for that basketball team. And I love, I love what Juwan speaks to. I love the fact that uh, Michigan holds a great spot in his heart and obviously you talk about his grandmother. But, you know, watching Jalen Rose on ESPN with the basketball, I love listening to him, Chris Weber doing work. You know, and you can't forget about Jimmy King or Ray Jackson. Nope. Those are five players I will never forget. Uh, you know, when it comes to Michigan basketball, never. No, uh, well, I, I agree with you. I, I, I mean, I, I completely uh, agree with that. And, and, I, and I really think that, uh, that you know, John Beeline did a great job. And I can remember when they hired him from West Virginia. I was always thinking to myself, my gosh, is this guy kind of a fatty coach? Or, you know, is his style going to work in the Big Ten? And, you know, obviously... He proved a lot of us wrong that, you know, had our doubts about him. I mean, I wish him nothing but success in Cleveland, too, but uh, but I, I am not as, I'm not freaking out like a lot of Michigan fans are right now, or I shouldn't say a lot, I guess, but several that I've talked to are just, you know, they're, they're you know, they're taking a wait-and-see approach. They're just definitely taking a wait-and-see approach. But, what, but uh, again, I think that uh, Jawan Howard, there might be some growing pains, but, uh, I, I think he'll do a good job. I think he'll do a good job at Michigan. I do too. And, you know, returning, 
uh, to his alma mater, and just like Steve Eisenman. Steve Eisenman talked about, I'll, I'll never forget the day he used the term. He goes, I was born in Cranbrook, British Columbia, but I was raised in Detroit, Michigan, and he's home. Well, yeah, there's, well, yeah, there is no doubt uh, uh, about that. Uh, uh, let's uh, let's get to a little bit of the draft, but I guess before that, uh, maybe get your, just your thoughts about Steve coming back, and maybe a, a few thoughts about Ken Holland and now uh, uh, his task at hand uh, being the GM of the Edmonton Oilers. Well, let me start with Ken, because it, it, it's a long, long tenor with the Detroit Red Wings, including as a as a minor league player, you know, cutting his teeth as a scout, moving into the chief scout's role, assistant general manager, and then a, a very long tenor uh, uh, period there as, as the GM, and arguably uh, uh, one of the best GMs in any sport uh, for that stretch of time. And you, you certainly have to put Ken Holland in that regard. And, you know, I said this often. You know, people look and they, they want to look at recent history and say, oh, yeah, look at what Ken Holland did. I don't care who the general manager was of the Detroit Red Wings. It was inevitable that there was going to be uh, a dip in their play, a dip in their performance right. because uh, of the challenges, the parity in the league and what you're trying to do to, to, to be competitive as, as your team. And it doesn't matter who the GM was. I mean, that was going to happen. And certainly I think when people uh, make that allegation against Ken, I, 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 think, it's, uh, I think it's short-sighted doesn't recognize what a terrific manager he is, not was, is. And when you look at the Detroit Red Wings and you look at a number of good young prospects in the pipeline, cap space in, in, in available to Steve Eisenman, I think that Ken Holland's left the, the team in a really good spot. And if you look at, a, at an opportune time for transition, I, I think it worked out really well. I think it worked out well for Ken Holland. And it's working out, it'll work out really well for Steve Eisenman and the Detroit Red Wings because some of the things that were necessary that have occurred over the last number of years, you know, that's never a pleasant thing to do when you come in new. So I think that Steve can come in and focus his energies and his efforts on the areas of building the team, knowing that he's got cap flexibility. And when you look at Steve Eisenman and what he did in Tampa Bay and some of the, uh, uh, a lot of successes there, but also some of the steps that, that they had to go through to find their way to consistent success. I mean, make the playoffs this first year and miss the playoffs the next two, you know, but, you, you know, working away, working, you, you know, year by year, step by step to build the team, being patient, understanding, you know, what you have to do at any moment in time uh, with, you, with your group, not, not hesitant to make what other people would say are difficult decisions. And the reason I say that, Art, mm -hmm. is because when you're a manager and, you got the, and you're smart and you've got the courage of your convictions, other people might say they're difficult decisions. Steve Eisenman looks at it and goes, this is the thing that has to happen. This is what I have to do to help this team be uh, successful. So it, it, it's doing the necessary things with the, with, with the confidence and the, and the courage to say, this is what we have to do at any moment in time. And I, I think that there's no question that, uh, that in my mind that Steve Eisman will come in and, and really help the Detroit Red Wings uh, turn uh, the, the, their present day into what people in Detroit have expected perennial contenders, and I, I, I think Steve will, will do that absolutely. Is it going to happen overnight? No, because it can't happen overnight. But I think that his 
his resume, his expertise, his experience, and you know where Ken Holland left the Detroit Red Wings bodes very, very well for the Detroit Red Wings future. Well, yeah, I'll say something, and I'll add on, and then we'll. I know fans will get into the draft here in a second, but. Uh, you know, Scotty Bowman has said it many, many times that Steve Eisman had to change his game. I mean, you're talking about a guy who, uh, you know, 165-point seasons, uh, you know, perennial, you know, just an offensive dynamo. But in order to win, he will do whatever it takes in order to to get that Stanley Cup as a player and now as uh, the GM of the, uh, uh, of the Red Wings. I mean, his his work ethic is, is literally I, – I, I find it amazing – I can't believe he's as focused as he is, but I think you hit it right on the head. I mean, he is just going to come in here and, uh, you know, come hell or high water, as that old expression is. Uh, you, know, the Red, you know, the Red Wings, are, uh, Red Wings are, are, are in good shape, and you're right. They, they thank Ken Holland for uh, the way he has set it up, and now uh, Steve takes the ball, so to speak, and runs with it. So it, uh, uh, I'm, I'm eager to see it, how it all plays out. Uh, I really am, and I know that... Uh, uh, it was interesting at his press conference uh, when Steve was introduced as the uh, executive vice president and general manager of the Red Wings. Uh, you know, he said that Tampa was eliminated on a Tuesday night by Columbus. He talked to Breezebra, the GM of the Lightning, on the next day on a Wednesday and said, what, you know, what do you need from me? Because by that time, everyone knew uh, the Red Wings had asked per, uh, permission, and this was like April, I don't know, 16th, 17th, right around there. Uh, the Red Wings had asked permission in March to hire Steve or to talk to him, and Breezebra said, go to Detroit, and uh, that was a Wednesday. Uh, and then Friday was the press conference on Good Friday, April 19th, as, as people here in Detroit know. Um, but I think one of the reasons is that he wanted to hit the ground running, and I think he really, 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 uh, with 10 picks and three in the second round and the sixth overall pick in the first round, I think Steve really wanted to run this draft and get his hands in on it. And I guess my first question to you, Craig, about the draft is, is that it seems, except for Bowen Byram, everyone is looking at this as being a very top-heavy draft with the forwards. Uh, do you see it playing out that way, too? As much as I think the Red Wings would like to take defense, much like Philip Zadina, who fell to them at six last year, I still think they would have taken Evan Bouchard uh, with that pick if Zadina wasn't there. But when it's all said and done, is it top-heavy with the forward core? Well, yes, and every draft has its own DNA art. And, mm -hmm. you, you know, when you look at uh, a draft, like you'd like to say, geez, we, oh, wouldn't it be an opportune time for us to take a defense? Well, perhaps it would be, but when, when you're evaluating players and you're, and you're looking at the draft and who you're going to select, you know, you have to take, you, you know, the body or the pool of players that are going to be there in the area that you select. So that, that, that's what you have to do, and you can't wish it away. You can't, and, and the other thing you can't do is, is don't try to don't try to overanalyze it. Don't try to say, well, this defenseman could fit in here and everything. You know, get your group of players. Now, I, I've said this often. Players are always, you, you want to get the players in the right group. And, and then you can decide, okay, do we want a center? Do we want a winger? Do we want a defenseman? But you got to have the right players in the group. And if there's no defenseman there, well, then you got to move forward. And you got to say, okay, what, what type of forward do we want? And, and, and that's the DNA of this draft at, 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 at around pick six. And, and that's just the way it goes. So I think for the Red Wings, it's about zeroing in and 
learned over the years, and, and I think people know this, just get good players. When you have good players, right, you're going to be able to, uh, to either have them in your lineup or if you want to make a trade, you're going to be able to do that. Is there any better example than Tampa Bay drafting Jonathan Drouin and then looking and saying we need a defenseman and being able to trade him for M- Michael Sergachev? I mean, that, that, that's the perfect example. You, you need good players. You need good players. And, you know, I've never heard an organization say, oh, jeez, we have this massive problem. We have too many good players. What are we going to do? <laughs> you know, so just get good players. And you know what? You know, not every player you draft is going to play for you. Not every player you draft is going to play for you for a long time. But if you have good players, your opportunities become exponentially greater. Well, I, I, I'm jumping around, but let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, the the United States Development uh, National Team uh, Development Program, first based in Ann Arbor, uh, now in Plymouth. Uh, uh, the U18 team, if you look at it, uh, I I was wondering. I'm thinking it, I was watching you in in the U18s. There was a power play where you said that all five guys on the ice for Team USA are legitimate top 15 picks in the first round. Is that unprecedented? Because I go back, and yes, I'm going to tell this story again. When that program started, Jeff Jackson, who was the first coach, took me into the locker room and had all the team jerseys in their individual stalls, and it was really kind of overwhelming, and said, our goal is is to make a national identity for hockey in the United States, is to turn this program into one of the best programs in the entire world and that you're going to see Olympic teams that most of the kids on the Olympic teams and all our world teams and national teams are all going to come from this uh, this area. Are they succeeding or is this just an extraordinary thing that may not happen quite like it has happened this year anytime soon? Well, I mean, I, I think this is a generational team. And, you know, I, I've seen every team since day one, every iteration of every team. And, you know, there's been some really good players and some really uh, top-end players come to the program that we know. And, you know, it's, a, it, it, it's, it's the brainchild of USA Hockey and Jimmy Johansson, and, and, and it has done what they wanted it to do. They, I mean, when you think about USA Hockey, they are a perennial champion at the U-20, U-18, U-17 level. And, and, and a lot of it uh, has to do with the National Team Development Program. That is now, I think, going to extend itself into world championships. And, and for me, hopefully Olympics with NHL players. Because much like the Canadian team, and Steve Eiserman can talk about this, in 2010 and 2014, that team was made up of a lot of players from the 19... Uh, uh, the, from the 2003 draft, which is the 1995 or the 1985 birthdays. And so when you look at Patrice Bergeron, you look at Shane Weber, and you look at the Jeff Carters and the Mike, all the, so many of those players were part of those teams. And so two gold medals, the, 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 the Stanley Cup championships that they were part of, Getzlaff, Perry. You know, when you start to look at all the different players, I think – I think that number one USA Hockey is trying to is, is building towards that, but I believe this 2001 group, the current crop at the National Team Development Program, the U18 program, 
has the opportunity to be like the 1985 Canadian group with players that will form Olympic teams and national teams for a long, long time. And I'm not talking about two players. I'm talking about six and seven players. And the only thing I want to correct you on mm-hmm. is you're absolutely right. I was broadcasting the U18 championship, and I said at first five, but I said really there's six if you include the goaltender, Spencer Knight. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because it was Hughes and Caulfield and Turcotte and York and uh, Zegras. So, I mean, that's who was on the ice. I remember it very clearly. And I said, yep. And, and then I said five. And I said, but th- there is six. But Spencer Knight's on the ice as well. But he was at the other end. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you when you look at it, and, and as I said, we'll jump. I'm going to jump around a little bit here. Uh, for yeah. the last couple of years, I remember you said, listen, um, I know the expectations are so high now. When you have a Connor McDavid drafted number one overall, then followed by an Austin Matthews, you're never going to see that. That's that is so rare to happen. And now we look at uh, at Capo uh, 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 Caco and, and and Jack Hughes, and people are saying, well, Hughes could be a generational talent. If if I may ask you this, Craig, is that because the way training is? Uh, the way that these kids approach this sport where, I mean, they're still kids, obviously, but they're so serious. You know, they watch their diet, they work out, they have a regiment that, are we going to see more generational players just because of the way the training method, the, the, the whole nutrition thing, every, the way things have evolved, or will there be uh, maybe a gap of several years, and I guess I'm asking you to see into the future where, you know, after Hughes, maybe nah, the next five, six years, you're not going to have that, those real generational talents. Well, here's what I'm saying, and I'm not trying to, to, to be too particular, but I think we have to be really careful about generational. Okay. I, I, I think that because generational means that it's a player that comes. Marilyn Mew was generational. Mm-hmm. I, I think Connor McDavid is generational. I don't think Austin Matthews is. I don't think Jack Hughes is generational. Sidney Crosby, generational. You know, uh, and, and so I think that we, at times, we, we, we take that word, and this is me speaking, mm-hmm. and, and we, we, we apply it too much of the time. I think that. Austin Matthews is a top-end player. I think Jack Eichel's a top-end player. I think Jack Hughes is a top-end player. But when you look at what Connor McDavid has done, and he, he, he's played four years in the league, he's led the league in scoring twice, he, he's, he's been an MVP in the league, he's been a Lester Pearson joint, he's been a first-team center all-star. Listen, you know what? None of those other guys have done that. <laughs> you know, right, right. When, I, when you start separating it and you start realizing, to me, like, you know, I think we have to hold that spot like, for, for the very unique. Now, that being said, these are really good players. And, and, and to me, it's not just Jack, it's not just Connor, it's not just Austin. Or, and when I say Jack, I'm talking about Jack Eichel or Jack Hughes. The young players now are so focused in at a younger age on training methods, nutrition, recovery. And, and because they have so much access to video and coaching, specific coaching, th- th- their games get developed at, at, at an earlier age. And, and I think what we're seeing 
uh, with this is the byproduct of all that, and that it's not just a training, it's an understanding, so that we do see younger players more capable of making an impact at an earlier age in the National Hockey League. And we do see players that are, that are capable of, of not only playing in the NHL, but being key figures on their teams at young ages. And, and I think that that's all, uh, that's all again, uh, the outcomes of these players having so much access to so many good quality uh, things, whether it be coaching, whether it be strength and conditioning, whether it be nutrition, and, and all the things that go with performing at an elite level. And, and we're seeing it. Art, I, I'm amazed. I, I go and watch games, and it, we talk about the game being fast, and it's getting faster. Mm-hmm. And, and you start to ask yourself, can it get any faster? And, and then in, in a month's time, you go, geez, it is faster. And, and you watch how the players execute, and you watch how they practice. And, you know, I'm always amazed. I, I wish every fan could go down to ice level and really see from that vantage point how fast the game is played at and how, how quickly these players are, are forced to do things and at the same time are capable of doing those things. I am so impressed by uh, the talent, by the training, and and by what the future holds for for, for not only the NHL, but what these young players are going to do uh, with all their their great gifts of of talent, but also with with the great resources they have at their fingertips. Well, I I, I want to... um... Um, ask you just like kind of an overview about the evolution of the sport because you know I I, I you know I'm, I've always loved hockey and so if not you know maybe besides college football it's it's right up there my two top favorite sports to uh, uh, to watch but I, I watch some of the you know whether it be ESPN Classic or the NHL Network it shows like a game from way back when and I just cannot believe and I remember I actually I'm old enough to remember some of these games being live and it just looks completely different but I guess that's just the way it is I mean that's what evolution I, I would imagine is all about the way it has evolved the speed of the game just the the the, the you know the just how intelligent virtually every player out on the ice seems. It's, uh, it's pretty astounding, and I guess it's, it's uh, kind of refreshing to see that hockey has just really uh, has, is reaching a level where it, it certainly is unprecedented. Well, unprecedented at the same time, you know, a, a really, really uh, great opportunity for hockey to not only continue to grow, but uh, put on put the skill on display to an even greater extent, and and, and I think uh, I think we're seeing that. And you know, it, it, it's interesting. You know, you think back to Bobby Orr, and you go back and you watch tapes of Bobby Orr. I tell young people go watch it, and I and, and what you watch is is Bobby Orr skating by everybody, right? And you go, geez, how did he do that? Well, you know what? Like like you know, he was he was a generational talent. I mean, but. You know, you watch Connor McDavid and you go, he's skating by everybody. So that's the evolution of the game. I mean, because, you know, when Bobby Orr was playing, it was different. You know, there's been been six teams added to the league. So, you know, the talent pool, you know, would come up from the American Hockey League. And, you know, what what we have now, yeah, we've had expansion. But these players can all skate and they all can think and they can make plays and they can do it quickly and under pressure. And I think when you 
when you watch a Connor McDavid and you watch a Jack Hughes, I, I mean, what amazes me and what impresses me as much as anything is not just the, the, the talents in terms of skating or making plays. It, it, it's how quickly they process the game at that speed. I mean, it, it, it is so impressive to see what they can do uh, so quickly in terms of whether it be skating by somebody or stopping and making a play with their hands and the vision they have. And, and those are two elite players. There's so many other players that have those qualities. Right, yeah, you know, you're so right. I mean, they they definitely, I, I always remember um, talking about Wayne Gretzky and everyone said, well, you know, you know, he parks himself in his office and he's like a chess player. He's four moves ahead of everybody else. He knows exactly what's going to happen because basically he's orchestrating it all. But I, it, it is just amazing to watch. And I, I you know, and I, and I did touch upon this, is just how instinctual or the intelligence that virtually every player seems to have. And when you talk to them after the after games now, they can really break it down. And I'm not trying to disparage any other generations or anything. Heck, I, I would be disparaging my generation. Uh, but they just seem to be more in tune, more in focus. But I guess not to be too redundant here, it's because of the way um, everything that they have at their disposal, all these tools, and my gosh, they really take advantage of it. Well, they, well, they do. That's not the, I mean, that's an important, important part of it. But also, too, and I, I think we we would be remiss in not giving coaches, yeah. coaches that are coaching these no players at younger ages, you, you know, they're not putting them in the boxes. They're, they're allowing the players to be creative. They're allowing the players to not only uh, be really good and, and, and to exhibit their skills, and, and they're developing the skills, but they're developing their creative minds, and they're developing the, the, their imagination so that they're not saying this is what you are. This is They're saying, hey, expand your game. Try this. It doesn't mean that you're always going to excel at the same level in this area that you would in this area, but expand it, add more repertoire to your game. And I, I, I think that that's what we see more and more of, Art, is, is players that can do more in the game. And, that, you know, the game used to be played in straight lines and right. in, in a predictable manner. And if you were a quicker skater, you got up the ice uh, faster. If you could shoot the puck harder, you could get it past the goaltender better. Now you see players like, you know, you think about defensemen. Defensemen can't just stand at the blue line in the offensive zone. They have to become part of the attack. But how do they become part of the attack? How do they understand? They have to be encouraged, and they have to be encouraged at a young age, and they have to be encouraged as they go through. You know, you go through the national team uh, development program, and you got John Robleski and, and Seth Appert. They, they encourage that. They want those players to make plays. They want their defense in the, in the attack, and they, they understand that you need everybody to create offense. So if if you don't have that, you're gonna have you're gonna have a challenge. Yeah, no, certainly you're you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I I, I want to talk, even though I know that they won't be there with the Red Wings, but uh, looking at uh, 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 Jack Hughes and. Um, Capo Caco, uh, uh, you know, it's been neck and neck lately, one, two, and, you know, and uh, Capo was just so impressive, at least beginning in, in the world championships and what he was able to do, uh, uh, but uh, I, I'm kind of curious, I, I know we're a few days away now, we're doing this on Monday, uh, the 17th of June, 
you still expect Jack Hughes to go first to the Devils? I do, and I, I, I'm not going to try to pretend like I have any ins right. inside information or insight to that. I mean, my own evaluations, and, and hey, Capo Caco's a good player. And, and Capo Caco, you know, took his game over the course of the season and, and, and improved it and got better and better and better and better and better and better. And, and, and that made uh, a conversation about, oh, is, is he neck and neck with Jack? Is he better than Jack? Whatever, whatever way you want to put it, I mean, that, that, that's a credit to Capo Caco. But I'm very clear on you, you have to keep an open mind and you have to keep your eyes open and continue to evaluate. Jack Hughes, to me, is a superior player. Now, people ask me, well, how close is it? Well, I mean, obviously it's close, but Jack, to me, is a better skater, has better hands, has his mind speed, the processing speed, and his imagination and creativity, you know, just, to me, allows him to impact the game in more ways. His coach talks about him playing with controlled chaos. I, I, I don't think that Jack is chaotic. I think Jack is controlled, and what, where the chaos comes in is for opponents. Because Jack is so adept at being able to react and respond to what is facing him at any particular moment in time. And then he knows how to take advantage of it. He's not, he doesn't predetermine what his next move is going to be. So the chaos comes because other teams are looking for reads and what's he going to do. Well, if he doesn't know what he's going to do, how can you know what he's going to do? <laughs> and I think that that's what sets Jack apart. And Capo right now has an advantage because he's physically more mature. But once it's all said and done at 20 or 21, I'm not worried about Jack. And all I know is this, is I've watched Jack excel everywhere he's been. I've seen Capo excel at where he's been. But I still think that Jack has skill uh, is, is superior to Capos and is a better player. How can Craig, like you said, you 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 you've been doing this for a long time, and you know, and I've been doing this for a long time. Um, you know, lose for Hughes. I mean, from the moment to a last year's draft, the 2018 draft was over. People were already the as I said, lose for Hughes, talking about Jack Hughes. And I think we have a tendency to forget that you know we're talking about 17, 18-year-old kids. Him being able to handle that, playing for the United States and their national development program, I mean, that has to account for something that really there seemed to be, uh, you know, the weight of the at least the U.S. on his shoulders, if not the entire hockey world, yet he's come out of it relatively unscathed and still was able to produce. Well, I don't think you have to look any further than his parents, uh, Jim and Ellen. Uh, I, I, it's a wonderful family. Uh, the boys, Quinn and Jack and Luke, are all terrific players. They all are in their own right. But they're, but they're better people than they are players. And I, I think anybody that's been around them will tell you that. I think it, it, it's a reflection on, on, on how they were raised and, and, the, and the families and the family unit that they have. And you know what? Work hard for your goals, but at the same time, you know, understand for you to achieve, there's a lot of other people that are going to, you're going to need to help you achieve, and you're going to be important to their success. They're going to be important to your, uh, to your success. And I think that those players uh, embody that in their work. And I, I think that, you know, the, the pressure, and, and, and I say this uh, about players and great players and top-end players, 
the pressure they place on themselves, in my view, pales in comparison, or the pressure applied from outside pales in comparison to the pressure that those elite top players put on themselves Mm -hmm. to be the very best they can be night in, night out. And that's the fire that burns inside of them. That's the competitive spirit that drives them to great heights. And so, you know, we look at it and say, okay, okay, he's he's wearing the, uh, the, the stars and stripes on his shoulder. He's carrying the USA hockey banner for the future. Jack is wired to be the best he can be. Every single shift, every time those blades hit the ice, that's how he's wired. And the pressure he puts on himself is far greater. Wow, wow, what an answer. Uh, yeah, well, you can see it. You can, you can, you can absolutely see it, Craig. Before we get in, and I'll ask you about some specific players. I really want to get your thoughts because obviously, Red Wing fans hate the draft lottery. Uh, they've only been in it three years, and they've fallen, they've they've fallen twi- down two twice, and one uh, went, went down one spot. Uh, you know, and they look. You know, Chicago moves up nine spots. Uh, the Rangers move up four. Um, I mean, do you? I understand why there is a lottery. Would you like to see it modified? Do you think the league might modify it, or do you think they're pretty happy with the way it's uh, uh, the way it turns out? I think they're pretty happy with the way it turns out because you know the way they've weighted it is that you know number one, you know, you know everybody now has an opportunity to move up. It used to be you could only move up four spots, so you know, like he. A lot of, a lot of, you go back to different, uh, uh, to different drafts. You know, there's teams that have moved up but didn't move into the number one spot. So you have to look at it now in terms of, and, and I think this is a really important element to the league. You do not ever want to reward losing. You never ever want your teams purposely losing. That's bad for business. That's like a grocery store saying, we're going to put rotten fruit and spoiled meat on, on our shelves. And in, in the hope that, like, you know what, we can drive away customers and maybe that will give us a better opportunity uh, to, to, to be successful. And I feel the same way about sports. Sports isn't about being bad. And I, I think when you start to try to lose and you talk about tanking, I think it's a bad, bad thing uh, for sports if, that's, if that becomes part of your narrative. Then, uh, you don't want to have that. And Ken Holland, you know, one of the things he made with the draft, too, with the draft lottery that I think is significant, is that, you know, a number of years back, he suggested that, you know, the teams in the conference finals shouldn't be allowed, that they should be picking at the end of the draft in the Stanley Cup champion and finalists. And, and, and now you see that, you know, that the conference finalists are picking uh, 28 and 29, and the Stanley Cup finalists and the Stanley Cup champion are picking 30 and 31. So there's been some adjustments within the draft lottery system, but I think what it tells you is the integrity of competing and the integrity of performing for the ticket-buying public and the people that are invested in your league is, is really important. And I think that the, the draft lottery and the way it's weighted and the way it's set up absolutely deters teams from, from tanking, and, and I think that's an important thing. Well, yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, I know, I know that uh, there's some Red Wing fans that say, "Really, Craig? You don't think Toronto tank for Austin Matthews?" But then again, the way the system is, there's it isn't guaranteed. I guess is what I'm trying to say too. So I, I, I just that. Well, you know, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Let okay. me ask you this. Okay. 
I'm not saying I'm not saying they didn't tank, but when you now can be rewarded for tanking without any real risk to tanking, that's not good for business. Okay, they still had to win the lottery. They still had to win the lottery, right? Okay, and and conversely, the other argument is. Oh my lord! Look at the Edmonton Oilers. They they won the lottery all these other times, and they got McDavid. Is that fair? You can't control the outcomes, but what what the lottery serves as is a deterrent. And and, and in professional sports, where you have fans paying big money, TV networks paying big money, key corporate stakeholders and sponsors paying big money, you want to have you want to start selling losing? I'll tell you what, you're going to start hurting your bottom line in a big way. That's why I use the grocery store. You're not trying. You don't get people into your store by selling rotten fruit and spoiled meat, and and that's what you can't do. So while a team like Detroit might fall down, another team might end up winning and and moving significantly up. That's part of it. But the idea is the, the deterrent, and the deterrent always has to be there to make teams say, "Oh, I only have an 18 percent chance or an 18.5% chance for the first pick." Jeez, that's not so good. Maybe, maybe what we'll try to do is, is make sure that we are doing the things that we can to be competitive. I'm not suggesting you, you be stupid in your management or right. anything like that, but the, 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 the inverse of that is not good for business. No, well, you know, cer- certainly it's not, and I and I think Red Wing fans would say, look no further. The last couple of seasons, the Red Wings have been on a tear to close out the season. It seems like, well, you know, I, I, you know, I'm sure you you've heard it. I, I heard it a lot. Why are they winning now? Why are they winning? But you know, professional athletes, and you know, and I, I, I joke. I say even the Detroit Lions. They don't play to lose. A professional athlete does not play to lose. I mean, that's just not. What being a professional is all about. I mean, they're out there to win regardless of what the score is, where they are in the standings. Each and every time they go out onto that field or ice or or diamond or whatever, uh, hardwood, uh, they're they're going to win. They're going to try to win. That's just the way it is. So, you know, it, uh, it, it it's interesting. And I think obviously I hear it all the time from wing fans because they've dropped in the lottery all three years they've been in it. But that's just kind of the way it is. You know, one thing I've always liked about uh, Craig that you've always said, and, and and I've kind of adopted that, regardless of where you're picking, if there's a player available with at that pick that you really really like, regardless of where he's rated, all that, throw that out the window. If there's a player that you really like, you just take him. You just take him, you know, despite what you need. If this is the guy you want, you better do it because he might not be there. When you look at this draft, and I know you don't like this question because I've asked you every year you've been on, but is this a real, real deep draft, or do you think that people are going to have to do their homework and uh, uh, really look for not only diamonds in the rough, but players that, you know, that will eventually make their way to the NHL? Well, I, I, I think you always have to be looking for, for those so-called diamonds in the rough. But, like, I, I think this draft has, a, like, you know, end of the second round has, has players with real capability to be what, what, what I like to call top five, six point-producing forwards, top four defensemen, and, and, and there's all different types of top four defensemen. Well, in the case of Spencer Knight, a number one goaltender, maybe there's another goaltender there. Uh, you know, perhaps, but I, I do think that that goes into the second round. And you know, I think that 
you know, when you start to look at the depth of the draft and you start to look at, at where you can get those types of players, because to me, when, when I look at, you know, top five, six point producing forwards on a team and I look at t- top four defensemen, I mean, if you want to be successful in the National Hockey League, you need players that, that, that fit into those different areas of your team. So when I see a draft that offers that, and, and you have to go and look at, and find those players, then I think the opportunity definitely exists in this year's draft. Well, and you know, that's good to hear because I know that uh, when Steve Eiserman addressed the media last week uh, about the draft, uh, he, you know, he said, listen, there's five or six guys we know that with the sixth pick are going to be there, and we would be ecstatic to get any one of those kids. He said, but we're just as excited for the 35th pick overall. Maybe it'll be a different kind of prospect, and we don't know who it'll be because he said, I think that this is a deep and talented group. So let me ask you this. And and I'm you know and I and I you know I don't want you to tip your hand too much, but you know everyone is under the impression that at number six, and I know you you basically already said this, the Red Wings are going to end up getting a very highly skilled forward. Because yeah, I I, I do because I I just don't think Bo Byram like he, I mean not only do I not think he 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 will be at six, I don't think he should be available at six. And but but and there's a but here. I mean, look what happened last year. I mean, there was a lot of people that felt, and, and, and this is a, a counter-argument to people that complain about the Red Wings moving down uh, in the draft lottery last year. They probably got the same player at six that they would have got with their original pick. So, you know, may, maybe it didn't hurt them. Maybe they still got the same player. It's just, it's just the idea that you, oh, we fell behind in the, in the lottery. So what I would say is, I don't think that Bowen Byram should be there at six. But he's one of those players where if he's there, you're just like, okay, let's get this one done, right? And right, right. But but I can't. I, I just can't. I, I just can't. A player that good, I just can't see the. I just can't see that happening. So yes. So now you're looking at a forward, and there's wingers there, and there's centermen there, and it, it, it becomes a fascinating exercise to to assess each of them because when I talk about you know you know top producing players, and that's what that group is at, at, at six. You know, you, you have a lot of different types, and you have a lot of players that offer you different styles of play, yet very, very highly effective uh, uh, styles of play where I feel they can be very productive. Well, I, it's interesting because I had thought, and getting back real, real quickly about Sedina, and I might have told you this, and I know I, I've told fans this before, um, I asked several Red Wing uh, officials last year that if they didn't win the Rasmus sweepstakes, the Rasmus Dahling sweepstakes, and, and get him, who would be the player that they would take? And almost to a man, they all said Philip Zadina. <laughs> Every one of them. So when he came down to six, uh, uh, you know, it would be because they, they they wanted a player that could score some goals. You know, that uh, that yeah. didn't play a straight up and down game and, and had a great shot, which he still which he still does. And you know, obviously, uh, you know he. Uh, uh, you know, suffered, I don't know, a few growing pains getting used to the game a little bit. But I think overall, when he was up here for his nine games, I think the Red Wings were pretty impressed in that uh, I think he has a legitimate shot. He's going to be given every opportunity to make the roster this year. Well, yeah, he should be given every opportunity. But, but again, we talked about Steve Eisenman and we talked about Ken Hall and previously that. I mean, 
one of the things you have to do is, is be patient. You can be high on players, and I know everybody's clamoring to get them into the NHL, but if a player isn't ready, and, 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 and most of them aren't, to produce. I'm not talk- There's a big difference between playing in the NHL and being able to contribute to success in the NHL. And the Red Wings have always been about, listen, we're going to get you here when we think you can help our team. Now, I know there's, there's times when you have to put a player in the lineup because you don't have any other options. I get that. But all in all, that is the philosophy. Steve Eisenman has done exactly that with the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning. So, you know, you, you, nobody wants to be patient. We all want to get somewhere yesterday. But the key is, is to get to where you want to be prepared. Because if you come to the NHL and you're not prepared, I can tell you what ends up happening. You get, the, the league will chew you up and spit you out. Right. It's an unforgiving league. So you best be ready. And a lot of times, teams don't allow their players to be ready. I have no doubt in my mind that, that, that that's where Ken was at last year with, uh, with Philip Zadina, as he's been with many of players in the past. And I have no doubt that Steve Eisenman will carry forth in the same manner. Well, I I think you're right, too. When you look at it, the Red Wings, the way the draft is going to break down for them, three picks uh, in the second round, 35th overall, 54th, and then 60th. Then uh, their third round is uh, 66. So uh, they have uh, five picks in the top uh, top 66. And then uh, in the top 97, they have six picks. So I mean, they're and I, you know, and I think a lot of people agree that it's a pretty deep draft. And I'm going to ask you to speculate here. Uh, I, I look at the Red Wings blue line, and I and I see uh, you know guys who have have performed admirably over the years, but are all in uh, you know uh, Nicholas Cromwell, whether he comes back or not. And Steve said that that's totally up to him. He would be welcome back, but there's no timeline for him to make a decision. Uh, Four of their five, uh, DeKaiser's right around 30. They're all in their mid-30s. Do you see the Red Wings going high skill forward first, and then in that second round, could they quite even possibly go for three defensemen, or again, is it just best player available? Well, I, I, I think they're going to be afforded lots of different opportunities, and I, and I don't think you, they're going to be precluded from being able to, uh, to draft a defenseman or consider a defenseman. Uh, in the second round, or you know, through those parts, you know, where they have those four picks uh, up to 66, there's going to be defensemen available, and and, and the evaluation is, is going to be amongst a group of players. And if there's a defenseman there, and they feel that okay, this is an error area that we feel that that player uh, is good, and we project him to be good, which is what you're doing when you're drafting. And you want to and you want to start putting more players on that on that shelf in the prospect cupboard, then that's what you do. Mm-hmm. I mean, last year they drafted Derek Isaac in the second round, and you know there's a lot of talk about how they needed a a defenseman in through the first round. Well, they, they got Jeremy Isaac. A couple of years ago they got they got Phil Holland in the second round. So I mean, there's a, there's two recent examples of players that uh, you know play the. The, the defense position that the Red Wings targeted, knew, and uh, to me, it was going to play in the NHL. There's different types of players, Phillips different than Jarrett, but to me, they both offer qualities. When I talk about top four defense, but they offer those qualities, and you need players that can that can play the different areas of the game and, and, and contribute in with different responsibilities. So, absolutely, I think that there's going to be defensemen that they're going to be able to look at and consider drafting 
you know, right through pick 66 and, and, and beyond. It does not persist end of 66 and beyond. Right, right. Well, I, yeah, I, again, I, I, I'm just eager uh, to, to, to see uh, what the Red Wings are going to do, and, and I, I'm really fascinated by watching what, uh, how Steve's going to handle, handle uh, the, these, uh, these picks. Um, um, Craig, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of do word association, ask you about some prospects here, and then have, uh, have you just give you know, your, a brief analysis of it, even though uh, a couple of these guys... Uh, will not be um, will not be available when the Red Wings pick at sixth overall. Uh, but I, I know you've talked about him, and you're probably at nauseum. But uh, real quickly, just you know, again, your thoughts on Jack Hughes? Well, I'm never going to get tired of talking about Jack Hughes because every time <laughs> you go to the game, no, no, Jack, Jack has no, Jack not only has that great skill and a great imagination, he also gets you to the edge of your seat. And, you know, you, you, you get out there, you watch him hit the ice, and you, you, you're not sure what he's going to do on, at, at any given moment. But what he can do is, is do something lightning quick and make it really electrifying. So, I mean, I said, I, I, I think he's the best player on this draft. I think he's superior to everybody else. And, you know, I think you're not just getting a highly, highly skilled player, but an electrifying one. And one, and, I, and I'll say this, and I don't think he gets enough credit for this, he is a dyed-in-the-wool competitor. His waters run deep, and don't ever, ever underestimate his determination and competitive spirit. All right, let's move on to uh, uh, Capo Caco, uh, who obviously, uh, as you said earlier, I mean, he's, you know, he... He, he, he looks like a physical specimen. He's just, he's a very, he's a large man. I mean, he's 6'4", 207 pounds, and he's he's 18 years old. Well, Capo is, is so good with respect to, you know, you get into the offensive zone, you get you, you play from below the, uh, the top of the circles into the offensive zone, and, and, and he can play uh, in all those areas, and, and, and he can beat you in so many ways. He can beat you with his skill. He can beat you with his power. He can beat you with his intelligence. He can beat you with a shot. He can beat you with a pass. So now, when you're trying to play against a capo capo, how do you play against a player like that? You're going to try to get up and muscle him? Well, he, he, he can muscle you back. Well, you're going to lay off of him a little bit, and, and, and you're going to give him a shot? Well, he can beat you with a shot. Okay, now he's going to take away the shot. Well, he can beat you with a pass. And, and then he's quick. He's quick on his feet. He can turn in quickly and beat a defender and get to the net. And he's got a willingness to go to the net. And then, then he's got a great mind for the game. He understands what plays are unfolding. So whether he has the puck and he's going to make a play or he doesn't have the puck and he's going to get himself open, I mean, those are attributes of top-end players. And, and that's exactly why we're talking about uh, uh, Capo Caco at that point in the draft and exactly why we're talking about you know, in the course of the last few months, is Capo Caco better than Jack Hughes? It's because of all those qualities. When you look at you, you you mentioned uh, Bowen Byram. Uh, if he's available at six, uh, I think you had a line a couple of years ago. I think it was Hiskin in the uh, the Dallas defenseman. If he were available, and the Red Wings were picking at nine, uh, Ken Holland would have rivaled uh, Hussein Bolt uh, uh, getting up to the stage. He wouldn't have been able to get up fast enough if he if he fell that way. I mean, Bowen Byram maybe the same boat. If he uh, if he were available at six, you know, uh, uh, Steve might uh, 
uh, you know, sprint up there. But uh, uh, Bowen Byram, what? You know, because I, I, I'll tell you, Craig. Throughout the year, everyone talked about his offensive skills and said he was a bit of a horror show in his own end. But he, you know, he led the uh, Western League in in playoff scoring. So obviously, this kid's got it. Well, I, I can tell you this. I've watched Bowen for a long time, for a lot of years, and I've never seen him be a horror in his defensive zone. I'll, I'll be straightforward if you go. Great. And, you know, the, the, the one thing I know about players when they have the puck all the time and, and, and they produce points, they don't produce it by being a horror in their own zone. they got to get the puck from their own zone all the way up to that other zone <laughs> where, where you score goals. And, and, and that's what Bowen does. So, I mean, I love to hear these ideas that he's not good defensively because I, I have no idea when you play that many minutes how you get the puck up to the other zone that, that, as often as he does. And, and it's not miraculously. It doesn't just drop from the sky, and he takes advantage of it. I said this about Heskinen, and I'm going to say the same thing about Bowen Byram. Rarely do I project defensemen. I said Darlene, Rasmus Darlene is in the same boat. Rarely do I project defensemen to be number one defenseman in the National Hockey And the reason I don't do it is because I think it's rare. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's, there's some defensemen. Eric Carlson comes to mind. I think people saw him as an offensive defenseman. Clearly, he became a number one defenseman. We knew Dowdy was going to be a number one. The rare. I see Bowen Byram clearly as a number one defenseman. I see Bowen Byram as a player that can command every single area that you need. Defense, transition, offensive zone, produces points. And he's got a spirit to him. He's got a competitive spirit. He reminds me so much of Duncan Keith. Two-time Norris Trophy winner Duncan Keith, a clear-cut number one. And I think for the Chicago Blackhawks picking three, if they don't, like, and, and listen, I don't think they can go wrong at three, but I think they're going to have to take a real, real hard look at Bowen Byram at three. And if they're not going to take him, it's going to be one of those ones where they swallow hard and just really feel that the guy they're taking at three is going to be a real important contributor. Uh, I, I see Bowen Byram as a, as, as a clear-cut number one. Well, when you look at that that way, and now we're going to get into maybe this area where uh, uh, Steve Eiserman said, you, re- you know, once you get to that 3 to 15 pick, everybody's board could look uh, look a little bit differently. But uh, I, I want to go to a, a, a player that was, for most mock drafts or rating system, was third overall for a long time, much like Philip Zadina was last year, and that's Vasily uh, Podkolzin, whom... And I'm not sure, again, because, Steve, you just don't know, but I knew the Red Wings were really, really high on him and liked him because he seems to be such a combination of uh, skill, uh, grit, and has really uh, outstanding leadership uh, capabilities. But he's been dropping lately, Craig. What's your opinion of Pod Colson? Well, I mean, I, I love I love, I love the silly Pod Colson. And, you know, inevitably when you're doing draft rankings and you're doing draft ratings, there's going to be players that are moving up and players that move down just because that's the nature of scouting. As, as, you, as you get more looks and you get more, as my friend tells me, data points on players, you, you assess in different ways and the players get assessed in different ways. And, you know, some players you didn't maybe think were as good start to show you more. And, you know, for, for the, I think he's a bulldog player. I, I think he's, 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 he's got all the qualities. You want, you want Vasily Podkolzin on your team because he's got an indomitable will. He wants to get into the thick of, of, of things. He wants to be in the guts of the action. He is that player that, you know, just wants to find a way to win. I think, he's a, I think he'll be a player that, 
uh, can play with all different types of players and support them and really help them. The only thing that's, that's caused me pause is how great is the skating. I don't see the skating as high end. And so when we see the game becoming faster and quicker and everything, mm-hmm. not that it hinders them, not that it will prevent them from being a, a really good, solid, competitive player, but I, I, I see players with more high-end abilities. So that's why and, and, and what I've done is, is, is push players. I like to look at it as, as I push players ahead of them, not push them back. But inevitably, when you push players ahead of somebody, they have to fall back. So that's what's happened with the Phillies, but make no mistake about it. And, and, I, and I will say this, too, about a lot of talk about his U18 performance. And I get it, okay? Everybody was there, and they see what they did. I don't think the big rink works for the silly pot goals. I think that he's tailor-made for the North American rink. The bigger rink, it's easier to keep a player like that outside of the, outside of the action. It, it takes longer to get to the net. So when you trap him outside the dots, and, and it takes longer to get to the net. When you're closer in on the North American rink from below the goal line and you drive to the net, I think it works perfectly for Vasily's game. So I think people have to be really careful about evaluating the under-18 experience on the big rink. Different game in North America. That's a that's a that's actually an, an excellent point again there, Craig. Uh, uh, another player as as we uh, keep going down a list of potential players available to the Red Wings at number six. Uh, I know many people in this area really like him. He plays for the uh, development program uh, out in Plymouth, and that's uh, Alex Turcotte. Well, you should like Alex. Alex is a determined competitor. I think Alex is is a player that, while maybe not, you know, being that high, high-end player like Jack Hughes with that type of skill, he, he's got a really good understanding of the game from, from okay, this is what i got to do here from this position. This is what i got to do if I'm playing in that scenario. He, he, he's really competitive. He, he wants to contribute in all different ways. And, you know, it's interesting. Go back to the third pick with Chicago, and I think it comes down to the defenseman Byram or, or a centerman. And, you know, Jonathan Taze, when he, came, when he was being evaluated, when he was coming through the draft, you looked at him and you said, geez, he's smart, he's competitive. He might not have this high, high-end skill, but he has all those qualities to help your team be really good. And, and, and he impacts the game in multiple ways. And, you know, it's really difficult to, to try to put uh, any player into the category of a Jonathan Taze. But if you're the Chicago Blackhawks and you're looking at Jonathan Taze getting a little bit older, you're looking at adding in a younger centerman to come in that can learn from him and ultimately take over for Jonathan Taze, Alex Turcotte probably fits the bill. <laughs> wow. Wow, wow. <laughs> Uh, well, I know several people here in the Detroit area hope that uh, that he is available at six and the Red Wings nab him. Uh, a player that seems in most mock drafts lately uh, that, uh, uh, and, and I love it, I mean, he's from the Yukon Territories of all places, from Whitehorse, a great story, Dylan Cousins. Uh, I know that he's dropping a little bit, but then it's just that he's just such a complete package and good size. Uh, what is your assessment of Dylan Cousins? Well, my, he, he is. He's an excellent skater. He, he, he's a big-time excellent skater. And 
uses that speed and that power to 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 push the pace and to push back defenders. You know, with with, with and he's, he plays with high RPMs. Like he, he he wants to he wants to play every square inch of the ice, and he's determined to play every square inch of the ice. You know, interestingly enough, as you and, and and again, this comes down to evaluating players vis-a-vis other players. And and I think that you, there's everything to love about Dylan Cousin. One of the things that, for me, when I evaluate Dylan, that I question, like, is he better receiving the puck as a winger and using that speed and power, or can he be the center iceman to use that skating and to open up ice? A center iceman has to be able to distribute the puck. He's got to be able to open up ice, you know, both ways, to his left and to his right. And, and, and I really, as I've watched Dylan more and more, I think it's because he's so conscientious about the game, I think he might be better suited to be a winger where he can get the puck on the move, use his size, and not have to worry about where he is without the puck, where he is trying to distribute the puck. I think it becomes a, a, a factor in your evaluation. Now, now if, you're not, if, if it's not a question mark for you and you think it's something that's really, really important, like that, that he's going to be that center, well, then absolutely you're going to be considering him right at the top of the drop. But if you think that he may be a winger and there's some other players that are ahead of him, well, then that's where you might see him uh, be taken a little bit later. Another player that's been rated very high, and I see he uh, continues to move up on most draft boards, but then again, there's so many out there, so you know he could be moving down on some as well. But that's uh, Kirby Doc. Uh, he, uh, big kid too, 6'4", uh, seems to be more of a, uh, uh, maybe not a big goal scorer, but a real playmaker. That's what he is. You nailed it. He's a playmaker. He's, he, he's, he's long. He's got this great reach. He's got very good vision. And, you know, when, 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 you, have a, when you have a big centerman like that that can make plays, I mean, we, we see in the, in the NHL and we see in the playoffs, space is at a premium. And so when, wherever you're at in, in terms of your height or your size, you have to be able to uh, carve out space or hold space for yourself. Well, it's obviously going to be a little bit easier for a bigger player with that type of uh, with that type of length. And, and Kirby has that. He's got vision. And you know, you think about centermen. You know, I watch Ryan Getzlaff play, and there's some similarities uh, between Kirby Doc and the way Ryan played. I mean, obviously Ryan has turned out to be a real top end center in the National Hockey League now. I mean, that's where projection comes in. If, if you think that Kirby Doc can be like Ryan Getzlaff, you better be considering him real early in the draft. But if you think that he might be, you know, maybe not quite as good or maybe just a notch below, well, there, there's other players that come into the equation. And that's why we talk about these players, and that's why when you mention, okay, that all the boards are different, they are. They are. Everybody looks at players a little bit differently. It doesn't mean that they're not looking at the same group and they don't recognize that these players are all the same grouping, but they recognize that, you know, there's different, uh, different tastes uh, for, for every team. Right, right. And, uh, again, not to belabor this point, and I think people are really looking forward to seeing what Steve Eiserman's taste will be when it comes to drafting for the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, if, if they're not talking Alex Turcott, uh, another American that gets a lot of play here that a lot of fans like in this Detroit area uh, is uh, Trevor Zegras. And I, I've heard that you know, many people think he might be one of the more creative players uh, to come down the pipe in, in quite a while. Now I'm going to go right to this. 
Mm-hmm. He reminds me so much at the same age. Now, the player I'm going to compare him to was like Zadini. He had a later birthday, so, you know, he was born after September 15th, so he went in the next year's draft. But at the same age, at 18 years of age, Trevor Zegers reminds me so much of Elias Pettersson. Really? In terms of, yes, really. In terms of his creativity, in terms of his vision, even in terms of the way he, he looks on the ice at times. You know, a slender body, he slithers through openings, you, you think you have him trapped, and all of a sudden he makes a play, and, and, and he leaves the defenseman like, oh, what happened there? And he, He's got a deceptive shot. And, and I can tell you this, you know, Elias Pettersson came, I mean, looks like, I mean, he should, I, I think he's going to be the rookie of the year. But when he got drafted fifth overall and he comes to the league, and everybody said, oh boy, Jesus, you know this. People knew that, 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 that Elias was a good player. Now, obviously, he wasn't in the discussion to go first overall or second overall. That was Nico Hischer and Noah Patrick. But when you start to, when you start to see him play and, and you see the, the abilities, you go, yeah, those abilities were there. That's where projection comes in. That's where teams evaluating players differently comes in. And so when I watch Trevor Zegers, I see Elias Patterson. Now, hey, listen, if he becomes a player like like uh, Elias Patterson, well, that'll that'll be unbelievable. But but I think he's got that type of a game. Wow, well, that 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 is extremely high praise. Uh, uh, we'll continue. A player that I I don't know I, I don't know if it's his name or something about him that that I really like is Peyton Krebs. Well, you should like Peyton Krebs. <laughs> Peyton Krebs. <laughs> you, know, you know, his oldest sister is a singer-songwriter down in Nashville. Madison. Really? And, oh, yeah. She, she, she's 23 years old, and uh, she, she's a singer-songwriter. So you can look her up. Madison with two Ds. Anyway, Peyton is, is, is Ryan O'Reilly. That's who I think he is. Uh, I watch him play. I think that he has that style of game, that type of game, that type of impact. When, I mean, Peyton is invested in every area of the game. And you know what? Like Ryan O'Reilly, they're never going to be at the top of the scoring sheet. But you want to get into games where it's critical and it's hard and you want players that can make a difference and can understand what needs to happen and, and how to play it. Peyton Krebs is your guy. He's your guy. Wow. Well, you know, I mean, all of them sound, well, I guess as, as Steve Eiserman said, we think there's going to be like a, a group of six, seven guys that are going to be there at six, and we would love to have any of them. So, uh, you know, again. Do you want to ask me about Boldy? Well, you know what? That was my next one was Matthew Boldy. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason, the reason I wanted you to get to him was because he reminds me so much of Nico Ratton. Really? I mean, so... Yes, he does. He, he like when I watch Matthew play, it, it, I, like I just, you know, I, I, I see Rantanen. Now go back and look where Rantanen got drafted. And, you know, there were some questions about how good a skater he was. And even I had some of that concern about him or question about him. But when I watch Matthew, and, and I'm going to give you a little bit of background here. And I, I, I think this is really important for Trevor Zegras and for Matthew Boldy, is that in, in 2017, when the 2001s came into the uh, National Team Development Program, you know, they won the U-17 World Hockey Challenge, and then they went, five of them at Christmas time, went up to the U-18. Spencer Knight, Cam York, Jack Hughes, Cole Caulfield, and Alex Turcotte. And that team now had to play without their five best players in the USHL. That team went to the league semifinals before losing to Youngstown. And the growth, the growth 
that Matthew Boldy and Trevor Zegras and Alex Lassick and Drew Hellison and Cameron Rowe and John Caulfield and, and Patrick Moynihan, I mean, all these players, that, and, and, there, and, there, and there's others, that all in that program, like, you think about it. Like, they were 16-year-old kids that all that had to still compete in the USHL without with, uh, without arguably their best five players. Mm-hmm. And, and they went to the league semifinals. I know talking to guys in the USHL, they've never seen anything like it. And I think that the growth of those players, like, the, you know, those five players going up helped them. But those other players staying behind. It wasn't like, oh, boy, oh, we've lost our players. We're not going to be good anymore. They got opportunity and they took advantage of it. So when I watch, I, I mean, watching Matthew from day one until now, I, I just see it. I, I see a terrific, terrific player. So I, I, I know when, you know, I throw names in terms of comparable types, like Jonathan Cave and Duncan Keith and Elias Pedersen and Ryan O'Reilly and Miko Rantanen and Ryan Getzlaff, <laughs> you go, whoa. But honestly, I think when I talk about these players, I think that they have those types of qualities and those styles of games and absolutely that ability to be uh, you know, players that can perform at that level in the National Hockey uh, the next player I wanted to ask you about a forward, and then I want to ask you a couple about a couple of defensemen too, just in case that they they were to drop uh, like Jared McIsaac did last year to the Red Wings. I don't think they'll be around uh, uh, at at thirty five or even beyond that when they have three uh, uh, picks in the second round. But uh, the number that stands out about this young man is seventy two. Not that he stands five feet seven and a quarter, uh, but Cole Caulfield, uh, you know, for a team. And I watch them all the time. The Red Wings that at times look like they spent years without scoring goals. This kid's a goal scorer. I mean, 72 goals is is hard not to notice. He's the best goal scorer in the draft. Simple as that. Mm. And let me tell you this. Nobody scores more goals per inch of height than Cole Caulfield. <laughs> He's 67 inches tall, and he has 72 goals. So you put that into, into the I think it works out to 1.07 goals per inch of height. That's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> that's, 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 a, that's a great statistic. i, I got to give it to you, Craig. I told, I told Cole, I told Cole, I'm going to use your height to my advantage, and I'm going to call you. Uh, per, per inch of height, you're the best goal scorer in the draft. And so he has a good, but I'll t- I got to tell you a little quick story about Cole. At, at the combine, I'm talking to him, and uh, we got chatting, and he comes over, and he's, and he's got this great smile, this great joy about him, and he says, uh, he goes, five, seven and a quarter. Five, seven and a quarter. He, and I turned to him, and I said, okay, let me ask you this. I said, 72 goals or five seven and a quarter. What, what, what's more significant? He goes today five seven and a quarter. So you know we can talk about it. A player say it doesn't matter. He was thrilled to be five seven and a quarter. And, you know, but as a goal scorer, I mean, he's done it everywhere. He's done it against college teams. He did it as a 16 year old in the USHL. He scored 29 goals in the USHL as a 16 year old. 29, 29, not bad. He, he tied Alexander Ovechkin's one-year record uh, for goals scored at the U18. Uh, Alexander Ovechkin is a pretty good goal scorer. I've seen him score every manner of ways. I think he's elite. I think he plays the game with with the requisite uh, qualities to be an elite goal scorer at the National Hockey League. And, and I will use this line, and I'm going to talk about three of the greatest goal scorers that have ever played. They're all in the Hall of Fame. And I'll just go back and tell you what they said about him. Mike Bossy, 
When he was in his draft year, they said he couldn't play defense. Brett Hall, when he was in his draft year, they said he was lazy. And Luke Robitaille, in his draft year, they said he couldn't skate. There's almost 2,000 goals there. Right. Stanley Cups, and there's, I mean, they're all Hall of Famers, right? So it, I look at players not based on their height, but based on their quality. So when I evaluate Cole, I see an elite goal scorer. And I, I don't see uh, areas of his height that are going to prevent him from being an elite goal scorer. So when we look at the draft, and you know, I, I, I know that uh, there's, there's other people that look at it in, in, in a different way or in, in varying ways. To me, I just see an elite goal scorer, and, I, and I've seen him do it against everybody, against the best competition. And so... That's what I go by, and I, I, I see him as a, as a top-end player. Yeah, but one more, one more forward, Craig, and then we'll get into some defensemen here, and then I'll, I'll let you go. I know uh, you should have heard our conversation off the air between Craig and I. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> so, so we've been talking for a while here, not just uh, officially on the podcast, not here on the Red and White Authority. Um, and I'm not saying it because his first name is Arthur, but, uh, you know, 102 points... Uh, 51 goals. I mean, 102 points in uh, 67 games played for Hamilton in the OHL. Arthur Kayalev. I, I I know I'm I'm mispronouncing his name. Uh, I mean, he's getting noticed, but he doesn't seem to be in the group that we just talked about. Well, I mean, uh, Kaliev is is how you pronounce his name, and uh, you know, 51 goals, 51 assists. So, like, I mean, he, he can make plays as well as he can finish them. You know, it's amazing, and, and, and I'll share this story with you that I had with Ken Holland earlier in the season. We were talking specifically about Arthur Kaliev, and we were just chatting, and, you know, he says, oh, yeah, I hear all he does is score goals. And we laughed, you know, all he does is score goals. And Ken says, he goes, all I know is at the end of the night, I look up at the scoreboard, and the team that has more goals wins the game. <laughs> You know, so what do you mean all he does is score goals? I mean, again, all he does is score goals. So all, all Luke Robitaille does is score goals. Oh, but he can't skate. All Brad Hull does is he scores goals. Oh, but he's lazy. Oh, all Mike Bossy does is he scores goals, but he can't play defense. Oh, yeah, all Cole Caulfield does is he scores, but, he's, but he doesn't, he's not tall. Really? Really, we're going to keep finding reasons not to have talented players. You can find any reason you want to not draft a player. You can. You can find anybody. There's not a player without a flaw. There will never be a player without a flaw. And I can tell you this. If you want to find the reasons not to draft a player, go ahead. Arthur Kaliev is a very good player. And you go back to last year. He had, I believe, 39 goals as a 16-year-old on the Hockey League for the championship team. It wasn't on a team that wasn't good. So he had to do it on a team where he wasn't given prime power play times and everything. He's a good player, and uh, I, I really like him, and I think that somebody's going to get a really good player. I hear some different commentary about him, and I go back to my notes. I, I go back to, I've even watched a little bit of, of, of previous games uh, on video with him. I don't see it. I, I see a top-end goal scorer. I want to move to defense now. I don't think any of these guys, because I, 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 you know, like we've been saying now at nauseum, that Red Wings are going to get a highly skilled, a very good player, a forward at number six overall. Uh, but a guy who's going to end up going to the University of Michigan from the development program. Uh, I thought he looked uh, uh, good in the U18s, and that uh, is somebody again that, depending on what boards you look at, they have them going really high or some of them have them dropping into the 30s, and that is Cam York. 
Yeah, okay. Well, I know this. If he's dropping into the 30s, you you got a chance of drafting. You better run up there. <laughs> right. I oh, mean, yeah. I, I, I agree with that. <laughs> I mean, I'm up there. And you know, it's, it's always interesting. And, and, and I think that scouts and anybody that, that's out there scouting can, can probably tell you a similar type experience. And, and this has happened to me, and I'll tell you what happened to me with previously. It happened to me with Timo Meyer. So I'd watched Timo play since he was 15. And now he was a late birthday. He was three years you watch him. So Cam York, I've watched him for two years. And you know, I, I, I think it was in February. I'm watching it, and, and you go to games, and you're and you're and you're not really you're, you're kind of looking for things, or you're trying to get affirmation on something, or get get, get a question mark answered, what, whatever it may be in your in your scouting process. But I, I remember sitting there, and I never went into a game thinking to myself, "Well, I got to see this about Cam." I mean, always good puck skills really good head for the game, skates well, makes good plays, you know, understands when to jump into the attack. And I'm, I'm sitting there in February, and I'm just, and I finally just wrote, I go, stop being so stupid, Craig. And <laughs> I said, he's a good player. What are you trying to, like, I was over-evaluating him. I'm trying to find things that, that, that just are like, like, you know, what are you doing? And finally, I just said, wait a second. He has everything you want in a defenseman, everything in, in today's NHL defenseman. And that's exactly what happened to me with Timo Meyer. I, I remember watching him in the Prospects game, and then I went back to a game in Halifax, and I said, like, really? Really? Enough of this. And that's how I am with Cam. I think Cam can run up. I don't think he runs a power play. He gets the puck moving up the ice. Like I said, if he's there in the 30s, some team, if he's there in the 20s, even, I'd say run up and get him because you're getting a really good player. I, I think that for Cam York, uh, you, you know, be careful about over-evaluating players sometimes because right. sometimes what's really obvious is right there. Just, just sometimes recognize the obvious and celebrate it. When, uh, you know, and another player that I just find intriguing that I really wanted to talk about in um, uh, Big German – um, Moritz, is it Cedar or Cider? Who, uh, yeah, Cedar. Uh, Moritz Cedar. Uh, he seems to be, uh, a complete package. And, you know, obviously, and I, you know, let's not make light of, uh, you know, German hockey is, is, is starting to come a long way here. I mean, they're, they're, they're starting to, to produce some, uh, high level talent. Well, I mean, when you get good athletes, playing your sport, you're going to get good players. I mean, the challenge in, in, for Germany in, in terms of their hockey development is a lot of their best athletes want to be soccer players or mm-hmm. they go into track and field so, or, or other sports. So hockey is, is a little bit down the, in, in the pecking order. But when you do get good athletes, you're going to get good players. And I, I, I think that's, that's true of, of any place in the world. Moritz, to me, it, 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 I, I come to this comparison. I think he's Brandon Carlo. I think he's big, skates well, rangy. I don't think he's going to be a big offensive player in terms of points, but you have to get the puck out of your zone. You have to get the puck up the ice. You have to be able to close down the cycle when teams are in your own zone. Because as we see in the NHL, you know, uh, the cycle game, the puck possession, if you can't push opponents off their cycle, off their possession game, well, then you're just going to get buried in your own zone. I think more in Cedar, much like Brandon Carl, they can close down the cycle, they skate well, they're competitive, they're territorial, and, and when they do get the puck, the puck moves. It moves going the other way, and that's what you need. That's what I see him as. He, yeah. he, he won't be there in the second round. No chance. 
But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm really stretching here. I'm just trying to think of because I know McIsaac no, no, wasn't pro projected to go to the second round. Who could they get at 35? Because I've convinced myself that whomever at 35, whomever drops, or if there's a player right around there, it's going to be a defenseman for sure. Another kid that I like is probably not going to be there. Um, is uh, I, I, I is Matthew Robertson. I, I, I for some reason again just. Reading about him, watching him, watching some video on him, I think that uh, this is a young man. If, if somehow he's at thirty-five, I think the Red Wings would would nab him. Well, he reminds me a lot of Essa Lindell of the Dallas Stars. So think about how Essa plays the game. Yes. Essa plays the game. Really good skater. Really good defensively. Really competitive. Uses his size to gain advantages and to push opponents out of their advantages. And you know, he, he like I use the term territorial. I love defensemen like Matthew, like Morris Cedar that are territorial. Like they say, you know what? Space is at a premium here. They put up, you know what? Do not trespass. And trespassers will be prosecuted. And that's exactly how they treat opponents. You're not coming into my space. You're not going to get comfortable in my space. I'm going to make it hard for you, and I'm going to deter you from coming in here. That's how Matthew plays. And, uh, I, again, another player, I don't think he's going to put up big offensive numbers, but those elements I just talked about with Warren Cedar, that's what Matthew Robertson offers. Yeah, I, I, there's so many guys, a defenseman, that I, I I would like to talk to you about, but I just don't think, you know, even the ones that we've already talked about that are going to be there, um, and, you know, I'm... I'm I'm looking right around. I mean, it, uh, will the Red Wings end up, you know, maybe maybe a guy like Ryan Johnson or somebody like that? Or do you think somebody could fall to them that's projected, much like Jared McIsaac, I'm McIsaac crazy today, uh, that, that fell to them? Because I, I think the Red Wings were still can't believe their good fortune that he fell to them in the second round last year. Yeah, that's how, and that's how you feel when you get a player that you have highly rated and, and, and how you should feel. So here's a couple of things I would say to you, okay? So, like, I, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to mention a few names here okay. that, that, that I think are candidates. Billy Hainola, a Finnish defenseman, really, really smart, effective, you know, not going to wow you, played on the Finnish uh, World Junior Championship team. I mean, he, he's, he's ranked higher, he's rated uh, by Bob McKenzie to go higher, but, but that's a player. Tobias Bjornfot, uh, a Swedish defenseman that uh, was captain of the Sweden team that won the U18 championships just in April uh, in, in Sweden. Uh, a highly competitive, great skating defenseman that closes on you defensively and can add a little bit of offense. You know, I, it, 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 where does Alex Lassick fit? The big, rangy defenseman, much like probably, you know, the left-hand shot version of a, of a Brandon Carlo. Uh, Lassie Thompson, a right shot offensive defenseman, plays in Kelowna. You know, really good on the power play, really good passer. You mentioned Ryan Johnson, excellent skater. Uh, you know, really, I, I think, really grew a lot in terms of his game and his confidence this year with respect to being able to settle in and understand that, like, my skating is such an advantage for me. I'm going to close on you defensively. You're not going to get on me on the four check. And he was part of a championship team with the Sioux Falls Stampede. Uh, I'll finish with two other defensemen. Vladislav Kolyakonik, uh, he played up in Flint. Terrible team. But uh -huh. playing for Belarus at the under-18, he's got poise and composure with the puck. He's got a real... Uh, you know, kind of smoothness to his game, you know, skating
skates, thinks, you know, can, can run the power play a little bit more on the offensive side. And then Caden Korzak, who plays in, in Kelowna as well, he's another, he's a right shot territorial defenseman that, that really competes hard, really is, is a competitor defensively, not an offensive player. So, I mean, those are just some of the defensemen that, that, that I'm reeling off. And I can't imagine that one or more of them are not going to be there when the Red Wings pick in the second round. Well, you know, I'll tell you what, it's very intriguing, Craig. I mean, I, I, you know, certainly I could keep going on and on and on here, but I think we've got a really good start uh, uh, for Red Wing fans to look not only at uh, the number six pick, but what they could end up doing in the uh, second round. Uh, again, I've convinced myself that they're definitely going to go defense as much as, uh, as much as they can. But then again, you know, Steve told me last week when I asked him, do you draft for need or do you draft the best player available? He goes, we draft the best player that we need at that time. So, you know, uh, <laughs> which, is, which is typical Steve answer. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing, too, is that I, and I will also add this, too. I mean, when you have to pick 35 in the draft, you can also, you can also use that as, as currency. And, and, and let's just say that, uh, you know, they sit down and one of the defensemen will be talking, well, let's just say Matthew Robertson, and they go, geez, we really want. So maybe it's an opportunity for them to package something else to move up to take a Matthew Robertson. So, I mean, opportunities abound. Uh, when you when you have different uh, when you have different draft pick uh, assets, but I'm talking about choices, and then their prospects, you know. So you always try to consider those things. But you know, like I said to you earlier, I I think the Red Wings, you know, at six at 35 through pick 66, you know, they have an opportunity to draft players that I can that, that I think can have a. Uh, like I said, top four defensemen, top five, six point producing uh, forwards. I mean, that, th- those are good places to be. And I, I think as, a, as an organization, you're happy to find yourself in those spots. Well, Craig Budden, I can't thank you enough. Uh, you know, I've known you a long time. I can still remember talking to you up in the press box at during Michigan football yep. games. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, I, I do appreciate it, Craig. I, I, it's uh, it, it's always a pleasure. I just enjoy. Uh, I just enjoy your company. I really do. And, you know, the director of scouting for TSN, uh, giving us so much time this time of year. I know how busy you are uh, that uh, I, I really, I, I can't thank you enough. Just thanks for joining us here on the uh, Red and White Authority, Craig. I really appreciate it. Art, I know you appreciate it, but I, I, I really uh, enjoy it. I really value uh, what you do for the Red Wings fans and uh, just try to add my perspective and offer some insight and you know one thing I can say with uh, with a real confidence uh, Steve Eisman running the team I mean the, the Red Wings will will be uh, back in a position where they'll be contenders of that I have no doubt and I look forward to talking to you after the draft when we can talk about this specific case. <laughs> well, that certainly we will. We will. We will do be doing this uh, uh, sometime uh, uh, next week when we uh, uh, assess what the Red Wings were doing and then get a little bit of an overview of the draft because I think it's. Uh, uh, first of all, Vancouver is a beautiful city, and, and secondly, I, I think that uh, uh, there's going to be a few surprises or two uh, uh, during the draft on uh, uh, Friday and Saturday. Thanks, Craig. Yep. Thank you, Mark.